Um, today, we start a new series or a new book. It's the book of Exodus. So let's, we're going to go ahead and just uh, dive right in. And man, this is just such good stuff. I mean, all of the Bible is really good stuff, but this is really good stuff, you guys. All right. So um, just a little background before we get Exodus up on the screen. We're going to read chapters one, two, and a portion of three. So don't get freaked out, okay? But we're going to read through it, and there's just a lot of stuff. So just real quick, um, the Pentateuch, so that's the first five books of the Bible, okay? were written by Moses. Genesis, or Genesis, it's Genesis, Exodus, right? Um, Exodus is part two in the story. We actually added the dividers. So this is supposed to be like a five-part mini-series, and Exodus is, is, series, is part number two, okay? So in this story, we see the demise. That, so God calls Abraham in Genesis, right? Remember the forefathers, the patriarchs, okay? And God calls him, and he said, I'm going to make, I'm going to create this, this people, the Israelites, and they are going to be huge, and they're going to cover the earth, and they're going to be a blessing to all nations, right? And then um, Joseph, do you guys remember Joseph, the Technicolor Dreamcoat dude? Not really, but, well, yeah, kind of. I guess they made a Broadway musical of that, right? Okay, so he comes into power, right? And he becomes number two in Egypt. God, God takes him from being hoodwinked and kind of rejected by his family and installs him as number two, okay? It, it, all, over all of Egypt. He's got great favor with the Pharaoh at the time, right? So that's super awesome. Everybody, all the, 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 the Hebrews are living in Egypt and they're having a good time. They're enjoying themselves. Fast forward a couple hundred years and that's where Exodus picks up, right? So it is a completely completely different scenario that we're walking into here in Exodus. So let's go ahead and get Exodus uh, 1 up on the screen, please. I'm going to read from my NIV version. NIV, is that what we have on the screen too? Yeah? Okay, good. Thanks. All right. All right. Ready? Begin. We don't have to do it together. I'm just kidding. Mom life. All right. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, okay, so just, um, if some of the, um, I just might like, be like, oh, that's Zeke, instead of saying whatever the name is, okay? Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, so we're getting a recap. And Moses wrote Exodus too. So, and he, sorry, another caveat. Who he's writing to, the Israelites at this time, they had lived in um, Egypt about 400 and some odd years. So at this time, they're, they're not, they don't have a, commu a religious community. They're not doing tabernacle all the time. They are not, they are not um, reciting Torah together. Culturally, they are Egyptians. And so they've kind of forgotten their roots, and they've kind of forgotten who God has told them that they are. They knew somewhere a couple hundred years ago that their forefathers had gotten a promise from God, had entered into a covenant relationship, and God had started that. But at this point, that is kind of like a distant, foggy memory for them. 
So that's kind of interesting that Moses actually is writing this to kind of help remind them and say, this is who you are. This is your heritage. This is what you come from. This is the God that you serve. Because they have, they have, no, they have no, no idea of that. So it's kind of interesting. So I think when we read this, we kind of go, why is this is obvious? No, duh. But that's what's going on here. All right. So verse 6, Joseph and all of his brothers, they die out. That generation has died. Verse 8, then a new king of Pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Now, okay, so verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, uh, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Okay, so what's ironic is the pro- part of the promise that God made to the Israelites, right, was I will make you prosperous and I will, I, will, I will allow you to just take over the land. I will make you so great you will take over the land, right? And the ironic thing is part of that blessing here that's been fulfilled, that they're so numerous, catches the eye of the current pharaoh. Now, under the, the other pharaohs that were around uh, during Joseph's time, they were Hyksos. And they were kind of okay with um, Joseph and his tribe, okay? This new pharaoh turns out to be very xenophobic. He's very pro-nationalist. He's like an early version of Hitler, basically, okay? So it's ironic that God's blessing and and the words that he spoke over Israelites are the things that are kind of causing this pharaoh to, to trip up and take notice and to punish them, right? Okay, verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Verse 11, so, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, so this is is kind of an under, so this part here is kind of Pharaoh's underhanded way of saying, we are going to try and suppress them so heavily how many of you guys have ever worked at crappy places, right? And you've wanted to quit, but you're like, I'm not going to quit because gonna, they're going to have to fire me so I can collect unemployment, right? That's kind of this idea here, okay? The, the situation is so untenable, and it's so inhumane. And Pharaoh's like, I'm going to just keep putting my, my, my foot on, the, on their throat, and I'm going to keep pressing and pressing and pressing until they break. I want to break their spirit. Okay, so this is the first, this is the first layer, right? So this guy's not a good guy. <laughs> he's evil. He's got evil in his heart. Okay, so this is, the, this is the first round. He's like, we're going to increase their labor. So by this time, the elderly and the sick start dying off. Okay? So verse 15. And then he moves into, this pharaoh moves into phase two. The, the 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. 
but if it is a girl, let her live. So this is infanticide, basically. Okay, so Pharaoh has moved to the next, the next, the next layer of evil here, and wiping these people out. And what is he? What is he motivated by? It's fear. He is motivated by fear. Okay. So 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? 19, the midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. And actually, well, okay, so here's the funny thing. I was like, right. Okay, but then I was, I was, as I was doing some research on this, they, they kind of just plopped the babies out, like took an hour or two, cleaned themselves up, and got back to work. Like that's, that's how they, they're, there's um, Japanese people, yeah, Japanese people, um, that, like farmers, like rice paddy farmers up in the hills that, that do this. The women give birth, pop the babies out, take a breather, recoup, and then get back in the field. That's just, that's how they do it. They don't, there's no break, there's no, there's no maternity time. It's just, all right, so this is, so uh, historians and theologians think that this is kind of semi-true here, all right. But at any rate, these two women, and what's significant is these women were named specifically. It wasn't just the two midwives. They're given specific names, which is a huge honor, obviously. God was like, these are oaks of righteousness. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Yeah. Okay? All right, so verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, and then, he, this is, and then he, he just keeps cinching the noose tighter and tighter and tighter. Now he's just totally outright, because this is to all the people, right? Before it was just kind of sneaky, like midwives, right? Maybe a few select Egyptians that were working with the midwives, but now this is, this is an all-out kill order on any male Hebrew, just let that rattle around your, bread, the, the, your brain, the evil that this would take, okay? So he puts a kill order out for every Hebrew boy. What does he order? He says, but you must throw it into the Nile, but let every girl live. So he's not commanding his soldiers to do this or an elite execution force. He is empowering every single Egyptian. So you, you see a little baby Hebrew boy, and they could tell the difference by, you know, dress. Hebrews dress differently. They wore their hair differently than the Egyptians. If you see a baby, it's a boy or a little boy, looks Hebrew, grab him and toss him in the river. No questions asked. That is pure evil, right? Now, what I want us to look at real quick, though, is that And the whole, the whole point of what I'm trying to communicate is circumstances don't dictate identity. Relationship does, okay? Now, what God had promised the Israelites were, you know, and there, there's so many verses, you guys. I, I'm not going to go over them, but there are so many verses in Genesis and Exodus and, and all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, that says, Israelites, you will become my hand of blessing across the earth because through you... We'll, we'll come to Savior, okay? And what I love about this is 
When God declares something over us, okay, there is nothing on the face of this earth that can deter that, okay? Nothing. And what I love here is that even as Pharaoh is moving in and he's, he's just becoming more evil in his plans and more oppressive, what happens? How, what, how, do, the, how do the Israelites respond? They multiply more greatly, right? Verse 6, they keep increasing in numbers, right? They just, it's like when God declares something over you, nothing that Satan can bring can undo what God has declared. What God declares is truth. What we might see around us is fact, but truth is another matter, and truth comes from our Heavenly Father. Amen? All right. So, all right, so that's just kind of a little prelude. So, you guys know I'm a big theology nerd, and I, and I love stuff like this. So that's kind of like, with the Israelites, that's kind of like the big broad strokes, right? It's kind of like background. So God commanded that they were going to be this incredible nation, right? And they, and they were for a while, too, under Joseph, right? Man, that was the heyday. They're, you know, they've got a number two guy, basically, in the White House, I guess, or I don't know what you call it. But they have... The Israelites are enjoying incredible favor, incredible influence. And then all of a sudden, a couple hundred years later, it seems like it's going the wrong way. And there's a pharaoh that comes along. He's like, no, I don't like you guys. You're not, I want to get you out. You freak me out. You're going to take over my land. And so God, right, at the same time that we see this, right, is raising up this guy named Moses. Let's look at Moses. And so, so if, if the Israelite story is kind of like the big brush strokes, right? Like the cityscape maybe, or the big background picture. Moses is like a vignette. And Moses is a close-up version of what we're seeing, how God's working in the Israelites, okay? So let's look at Exodus 2. Um, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister, Miriam, stood at a distance to see what would happen. All right, so just real quickly here. Um, I'm going to kind of skip through some of this because of our time, but, all right, so two things here, and this is important because I love it, and there's so many verses, and I was cramped for time, so I'm not, but I want to encourage you guys. Moses' life, as we'll see, looks like a travesty. His life in the beginning, and for many years after, does not look like he's going to be the deliverer of the Israelites. You're like, there's no way. If I was a betting person, there's no way. I'd bet on Moses. <laughs> no way. But what's fascinating, and like I said, is when God declares something over us, that's it. That's truth. Yeah. That is truth, and that will come to fruition because we serve a God who is faithful. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, you know that Psalm um, 139, right, talks about how God, what, knit us in our mother's womb. In the Hebrew, that idea is is like, it's like God has labored over you and put you together, every single molecule, every single cell. 
Every strand of you, God has labored over and put together piece by piece. And so what's cool is Moses is no different. And here's the cool thing, right? In verse 2, or in verse 1, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. So basically Moses on both sides of the family, the Levites not yet because Israel's not set up like this. They're kind of a loose people group, right? But what's awesome is that God was like, Moses, I am picking you for a specific reason, but I, out of you and out of your line and out of your parents' line, I am going to create the priestly, the, the priestly ruling tribe to lead Israel. And it's cool because Moses on both sides has got the credentials, so to speak. And it's awesome because God said, I pick you, Moses, and I'm going to imbue you with characteristics and talents and a heart and the genealogy before you even knew what I was going to use you for. And I think that's amazing because God plants stuff in us that we have no idea about or we have no idea. It lays there dormant maybe. We're like, eh. And then he comes along and he activates us or maybe he's whispered stuff to you years ago. And it feels like, your dreams or whatever, your passions, God's dreams for you have kind of lain dormant or they've gone by the, the wayside and they've shriveled up and died. But then God comes along and he's like, guess what? It's time to get activated. I'm activating you. Now is the time. What I spoke over you is, is coming to fruition. Now's the time. And so that's kind of what we see with Moses here. Um, just a quick nerd note here. Um, when it says in verse 3, uh, she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket. The word in Hebrew here for basket, it's, it's, it's translated wrong. It, the, the English folks got it wrong. It's the same word that was used in the Old Testament for ark. It's an ark. Okay, nobody, nobody got that. This is what's cool. In the ark was Noah and his family, Right? New beginnings. Moses is a new beginning for the Israelites. Yeah. Mako, party of one. Mako, party of one. I just think it's cool, though. Okay, and so once again, we're tying the, the Old Testament together, and so you see these themes and these types, okay? Moses is a type. Noah was a type. And what do all types point to? Jesus, okay? So it's like there's hope here. There's hope. There's a new beginning in this basket. It's not a basket. It's an ark, okay? All right, so that's pretty cool. Okay, so I'm going to just recenter because I just nerded out for a second, got way excited. Okay, so we know we're going to, so Pharaoh's daughter, um, she is bathing in the Nile, and she sees this basket in the reeds, this ark, little baby ark that's enclosed, by the way, and it's sealed. She grabs it, right? And as was the custom, she says, let's find a midwife and let's nurse this baby. So, amazingly, Miriam, the sister that's been keeping watch over the basket, or the ark, the baby ark, let's call it the baby ark, okay, says, oh, I know a midwife that'd be great, and it's her mom. And so, even in the midst of horror, can you imagine having, this part in the beginning where it says that um, she looks at him and she sees that it was a fine child, verse 2. His mom, Jehokabim, 
loves her child. She loves Moses, and he is precious to her. We lose the translation when it says she looks at him and he's a fine child. She is enamored of her child. Can you imagine having to give up your child? I have one child. I have Sophia, and I love her, and I have done things for her that I'm not proud of. I, I bawled out a four-year-old when she was younger. I was picking on Sophia. I'm like, you better back off because you're going to have to deal with mom next. But I know. That's okay. I didn't touch the kid. Um, but, and yet, even, and this is what I'm saying, when God speaks life over us, when he speaks promise and fulfillment, he makes a way where there is no way. So for Moses' mom, it looks like she's completely lost her kid. And God's like, guess what? You get to nurse him. And in this culture, they, they got nursed up until four years old. So she got these years with him, these formative years with her son. And then at this point, so he gets to grow up knowing his birth family, basically, which is amazing and awesome, and God's provision in the midst of something that's horrible, okay? All right, so we fast forward this. Um, Moses is, um, he grows up, and then he, he, he becomes a prince of Egypt, basically. We've all seen the animated film. We have, because we have an 11-year-old. All right, so let's, let's pick this story up in 11. Uh, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Now he knows that he is a Hebrew and not an Egyptian because he's grown up with his family for the last four years, right? Okay, but at this point then he goes back to Pharaoh's daughter and is raised as an Egyptian. Okay, so he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, Looking this way and that, so it's premeditated on Moses' part, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Okay, so you might think, they'd be like, oh, this Egyptian prince is uh, showing us some grace and favor. Like, we're going to be accepting of that and say, thank you so much, sir. No, but... And he's like all fired up, like the rendering here, we don't get it. He is like, when he gets involved, he's like touched to his core. He's like irate. He's like, this is injustice and this is wrong. So that's his motivation, okay? So he's all fired up. He identifies with the Hebrew people now. He probably has some split identity issues, though, going on. Can you imagine this? Like his back and forth life, kind of? Okay, so. So what is their response, though? How do they respond? Verse 14, the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? What? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? So here Moses thinks he is kind of, he's got this in his heart, right? It's stirring to be a liberator, to be a, to fight for the underdog, right? To be a leader. And it's in his heart and it's stirring, and he does this thing, and this is what it's met with. Who made you judge and ruler over us? Boy, if anything was going to give you pause for how you were put together or wired, this would be it. Okay, this is interesting. Then. In 14, the second half, then Moses was afraid and thought, what, must I, what, what I did must have become known. Okay, so Moses splits, right? And he takes off to this podunk town called Midian. He just packs up and books it, right? The Midians were Semitic, 
but they were not they were not Hebrews. Okay, so he goes, he takes off, and he goes to this podunk town, and he's sitting by the well. And let's pick it up in 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, okay, he tried to kill Moses, so his adopted grandpa tried to kill him. Like, let that rattle around in your head. What would that do for you for family relationship and thinking about your worth, right? Okay. All right. Um, But Moses fled from Pharaoh, verse 15, and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. 17. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But what does Moses do again? Because this is what he's got in his heart, right? It's like a burning thing. This is who he is, okay? Moses got up and came to their rescue. A lot of the commentators think Moses, because of how he was raised and had access to the very best of everything, food, you know, he was, he was taught the fighting ways of the Egyptians, that he's probably a big, imposing guy, and he knew how to carry himself like a soldier. So he rises up, and he gets in the face of these, you know, he stands up for the little people, basically, and he drives off these jerk shepherds so that these ladies can, can water their, right? Okay, so... What they do is they go home, and the father's like, what? Why are you home so early? Okay? And the dad says, where's, well, and they tell him, and they're like, well, where's the guy? And they're like, oh, we'll go get him. So they go get the guy, which is Moses, and they bring him back. And uh, this is kind of funny. I love how this is all condensed. Verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with a man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom saying, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. All right, so we're going to kind of camp out there for a second because this is, if I was going to boil everything down here that we've read so far to a verse, it would be verse 22, and here's why, or 21. Well, 21 and 22, I lied. What does Moses name his son? It's Gershom, right? And at this point, Moses is like in his 40s at least, Okay, and he has got all these things. Like he knows that he's had the very. Can you imagine? He's just what he named his son is keen insight into what's going on in his his heart and his soul. It's like a double negative. He's a he's a foreigner in a foreign land. You can't get much more removed than that, can you? He doesn't fit well in Egyptian society. He failed as a Hebrew. He blew it as an Egyptian, right? He was given the very best of everything and couldn't hold on to that. He's a murderer. He probably doesn't know which culture he identifies with. And then he's probably like, I felt like maybe... Because of what's inside me, I was going to be a leader, and I was going to stick up for the little guys or help people. And that obviously didn't go so well because I'm a shepherd now. (laughs) He is a shepherd in a podunk town. This once proud king of Egypt is a nobody. And he probably stinks and is smelly. He probably has dirt caked under his fingernails because as shepherds, that's what you did. You slept out in the, the field and the ground with your herd. Probably got hair stuck in his, or hay stuck in his head. He smells gross. His hair is probably matted. He's probably got a big old nasty beard with creatures living in it. 
okay? Then he has his son, and he's probably doing a lot of thinking. What went wrong? What misstep did I do to end up here? I had it all, but I completely blew it. How did that happen? Just try and put your, and that's kind of a mirror of what happened with the Israelites, right? Things were going along well for them, right? They had favor. Number two guy was a Hebrew, and then they end up just under the foot, the heel of Pharaoh. And so Moses at this point is, is, is just probably in, in the gutter, emotionally, mentally, physically. To name, and then in this culture, when you named your kids, it's not like here where we're like, we like this name, we're going to go with this name. They waited to see, after the child was born, what circumstances were going on. So if you look in the Bible, there's a lot of kids that are, you know, I don't know, God forgot us or <laughs> God showed favor on us. It's tied to what's going on in the life. And Moses, for him, he feels completely and Utterly forsaken and alone. Utterly. All right. Now, if you were going to look at Moses at this time and tell him, guess what? You are going to not only be the ruler over the Israelites, because that's what he was, you are going to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, and you're going to win and it's going to be in a spectacular way. You think Moses would have been like, yeah, let's go. I'm ready. He probably would have been like, no, I, I think you have the wrong guy, not me. You see my life? Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to go two more minutes. Two more minutes here. Okay. All right, let's go. Let's look at, um, so we're going, to, we're going to just dip into, so that's how we leave chapter two with Moses, all right? That's okay. Trying. We, we could be here for 10 hours, John. <laughs> we won't. We won't. I promise. Thank you. All right. I'll just go a few more minutes. Okay. So, okay. So, Moses, his state of mind, he feels like he's just a big loser. He's made a mess out of his life. He's amounted to nothing because ten, he's tending sheep in a podunk town that is way out of the way, right? Okay. Then we start chapter three. Let's read three. And, um, sorry, this conference that I went to called the Imagine Conference was super awesome because Sean Bowles, who um, I talked about, was the, the guy that kind of did the prophecy and he was hosting this conference, he said, God loves to take us when we are in an unlikely state, unlikely situation, and make things happen. Because you know what that means? That means that only God can make a way. And it's not because God is a megalomaniac and he's like, yeah, look at me, I'm awesome. Because he is a good father and he is deserving of our praises and our honor. And when stuff like that happens, when God says, I make a way where there is no way, I make doorways where there are just brick walls, it brings honor and glory to him. And it causes us and others to be like, God, you are so awesome. You are truly Yahweh. You are truly God. You make the possible, the impossible possible. And that is ultimately what we're here on earth to do, is to bring glory to God and to be, remember, what did I say, types. 
to point to Jesus and say, he's got it, he's the way, he's the truth. Okay, amen? All right, so let's look at um, the beginning of Exodus 3. So this is Moses and the burning bush, but I'm going to kind of rush over the burning bush, which I know is kind of like, what? Because it's a burning bush, but bear with me. All right, uh, so Exodus 3, we're going to do 1 through 12a, so the beginning of 12. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Now what's interesting, you guys, is that, and I think this is not an accident, whose flock was it? Was it his flock? Was it Moses' flock? No, it's his father's law. He is such a nobody. He doesn't even have his own sheep to tend. He's tending somebody. He's tending his father-in-law's sheep. Okay? So this guy really has nothing. He has a son and a wife. But he doesn't even have his own sheep to tend. Okay? So, three. The priest of Midian, his, so his father-in-law was the, Jethro was the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Verse 2, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that, though, the bush was on fire and it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange light, why the bush does not burn up, which is probably a normal reaction, right? I'd be like, that's weird, I'm going to go check it out, right? Okay. Four, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and this is what I love. God knows our name. He knows your name. He knew Moses' name. He wasn't like, hey, you loser over there, doesn't even have your own flock. He said, Moses, Moses, God knows our name. He knows where we're at. He knows our situation. He knows our circumstances. We are not forgotten by God. Okay? And how does Moses respond? He says, here I am. Now, once again, Moses has got, he probably knows more about the Egyptian pantheon than he does about Yahweh. Okay? Because he's been schooled at the very best Egyptian schools. So he's not like, oh, Yahweh, right? The God of my fathers, you. He has no context for this. This is kind of weird for him. He's like, I don't know who you are, but this is fascinating, so I'm going to go check it out, okay? And instantly noticed his posture. He said, I am here. Here I am, okay? All right, verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing on is holy ground. Then he said, this is like a reintroduction. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Once again, there, God is reintroducing himself to this people group, okay? Because it's been about 400 years since he's interacted with them, right? Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Verse 8, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. 
And this is what I love. If you take anything out of this, and this is, this is my point, take this. Our situations don't dictate our identity. Okay? Relationship dictates identity. Relationship with God. So notice in 11, Moses is like, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That is a loaded question. He is asking for his worth. He's like, I don't even own own my own sheep, and you want me to go do this? You know who I am? (laughs) I'm a nobody, living in a nobody town, married to a nobody family. You want me to do what? And this gets me every time. How does God respond? Verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. That is the relationship part. When God speaks over you and he says, I know your name. Our circumstances might look like this. That is fact. But there is truth. And there is God's truth. And God says, when I've spoken over you, that's it. That's the end. Can I have the band to come up? Sorry, what the band? No, okay, sorry, John. (laughs) Anyways, I I just hope you guys get this. And maybe you're like, make, and I know from conversations, a lot of you guys are in crappy situations. You're walking through tough situations. And you feel like God's forgotten you. Or maybe God spoke something over your life years ago and you're like, "Mm," maybe you feel like uh, Moses or the Israelites. You're like, everything is going the opposite direction. Well, I'm here to tell you God is faithful. And I want to challenge you. Go to your Bibles. There are so many verses in here about the goodness of God. I want you to cling to those verses and ask God to give you heavenly sight, heavenly eyes. And this isn't new age crap. This is truth. God says, focus on what is beautiful. Focus on what is true. I am faithful. I am faithful. I am faithful. I am faithful. And what I declare and speak over you will come to fruition. And so if you're walking through a tough time, I want you just to raise your hand, and we are going to declare boldly in the name of Jesus. Lord, I break strongholds in the name of Jesus. I break negative thinking in the name of Jesus. God, you have called us to come up higher, to think on a higher level, Jesus. And I pray for that higher, that heavenly vision, Jesus. Let us see our situations and ourselves from the viewpoint of heaven, Jesus, which in your eyes, it's already done. Lord, for Moses and the Israelites, it was already done. But on the ground level, it didn't look like it. God, we declare your sovereignty over our lives, and we thank you for it, Jesus. In your name, amen.